one of my best friends in college, his name's Rob Pruka, uh, before I met him at Johnson University, go Royals, was an engineering student at Iowa State out there in Ames, Iowa. And Rob loved volleyball. I mean, he loved it. And so Rob's a pretty athletic dude, and he got some of his buddies together, and they decided that they were going to sign up for the A-League intramural volleyball at Iowa State, okay? Big state school, and they were playing against a lot of dudes who played men's volleyball in high school competitively. So this was like the big league, as competitive as it gets, no holds barred. And they decided to name their team Mark 1045. And that was a, a bold move, especially at a state school, uh, to have their team name a, a scripture reference, and they proudly had it on t-shirts and, and uh, in the bracket and what have you. But before you give Rob too much credit and think that this was an amazing evangelistic uh, thing that he took on, let me tell you what Mark 40, 10, 45 says. It says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Vo volleyball, yeah, okay, we got it. <laughs> well, that's a silly joke. It was silly then and it's silly now, but that's how I'm choosing to start my sermon on serve people. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nate Plyler. I'm the middle school and outreach pastor here at Bachelor Creek. Uh, my wife Chloe and I have been here for about six months, um, and we just couldn't be more tickled to be here. Uh, we love this family. We love what God's doing here. And I'm, I'm happy to be here uh, this morning with you all preaching uh, the final like segment of this series on fellowship. Um, and as you all know, and as... Our, all of our computers can constantly remind us with that squiggly red line, fellowship is not a real word, okay? We, we made that up. Um, but we did that to be very, very clear about something. You understand that because of our past experiences, things that have happened to us, things that we've done, things that we've even heard that we haven't experienced, we come to things of faith with a certain taste in our mouth, and, and we hear certain words with a slight bent towards them. And oftentimes, that's not actually what that word means. And especially in our culture outside of these walls, when the words Christian or church or even disciple are said, there can be some mixed connotations there. There can be some baggage there. And so we wanted to be abundantly clear that here at Bachelor Creek, we are about one thing, following Jesus Christ. We see the heart of God unfolded through Jesus incarnate. We read about him in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We, we hear the words that he said, that he, that he preached to multitudes, and that he had in one-on-one -on -one conversation. We watch what he did, and then we go do it. And we have the power of the Spirit of God within us to help us do it. The same Spirit that was in Jesus Christ as he did all of these miraculous things. We have that Spirit too within us to help us do just as he did. That's it. That's fellowship. You guys with me? Okay. Sermon done. We got it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you. We laugh because it's not that simple. Rather, it's not that easy. That's it. That's our formula. That's our pattern. And we have a couple of things that get in our way from doing it. For one, 
we really like our comforts, friends. And when Jesus calls a person, he calls them to do some uncomfortable things. He calls her to do some things that are going to be different. And we watch Jesus do some crazy stuff. And when Jesus really calls you and beckons you, you're going to have to say goodbye to some of your comforts. That's hard for us, isn't it? I think another thing that really holds us back is our clinging to understanding. Here in the West, we place such a high value on knowledge and, and wisdom and, and understanding. And sometimes we get this perception that we, we come to church to get to know more about God. But I don't really think that's it. I think God wants our obedience more than our understanding. Because let me ask you this. If I understand everything, if I feel a prompting within my spirit to go do something, and I first retreat back into my mind and think through, okay, what's this going to cost me? How much time? How much money? What's the investment? How much energy? Can I do this? And then the return of investment. What's in it for me? What's in it for them? What's the fruit that's going to be born? And if I weigh all those things out in my mind and then decide, yeah, I'll do that one. Is that really obedience? Or is that just another carefully crafted decision that I've made? Friends, I think Jesus is pretty clear it's not obedience. And I think Jesus didn't come just to give us more understanding. In fact, I don't even think that was his main purpose. I don't think that God incarnate, the person of Jesus, just himself, and even the words that he said, the way that he spoke, I don't think their main intent was to give us more understanding about God because let's face it, we can't know God. And isn't that beautiful? Isn't it amazing to just let go of the reins of understanding a little bit and recognize that God cannot be known but only loved? That we can't reach God with our minds. And in the West, again, I'm not, I'm not bashing our culture, I'm just saying we need to recognize that this is something that we deal with, that we just desire knowledge because we feel that that's power. And we feel that if we really understand everything, then we'll do it. But friends, God calls us to do things that we don't understand. God requires, in fact, response. So this morning, I want us to ponder a question. And that question that's been on the slide is this. How will you respond to the selfless love of God? This question has been booming through the universe since, since the beginning of time, since before we ever existed, right? Because the selfless love of God was always the only fact about the universe. God love. And it is a selfless kind of love. And since your conception and since your consciousness, this question has been echoing through your soul. How will you respond? How will you respond to the selfless love of God? How will you respond to the love that's been shown to you? And this question is asked to everyone who comes at the foot of the cross. Because the cross demands response. You cannot not respond. You must respond to the selfless love of God. So this morning, as we talk about serve people, we're going to explore a passage of scripture and if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 13. Uh, I'll, we'll have it up on the screen. It'll be in the English Standard Version. If 
you have another version, I encourage you to open that up because the, the language there might speak to you in a place where you are, and I do not want to cut off the Holy Spirit from that. So John chapter 13. This morning, as, as we enter in this story and, and we just witness the selfless love of God in, in full effect, and we take in the beauty, I want us to have that question in our minds. How will you respond to the selfless love of God? Because we're going to study Jesus, we're going to look at him, and we're going to take some cues from him and hopefully change our lives to look a little bit more like him. But I want you to let, loosen the reins of understanding a little bit. Because so often, we come to scripture with the, with the glasses of understanding. I want to know more, so I read. But this is a different kind of book, right? And you understand that whenever you come to scripture, you've got a certain lens whether it's your experience or what you're looking for, but we all come to Scripture looking for something, whether you acknowledge it or not, that within you, you're coming with, with something over your eyes. And so I'm going to ask that just for this morning, if we take down our understanding lenses, and we just set those aside for now. I'm not saying that they're poor or that they're invaluable, but just for this morning, I want us to take up a new set of lenses, and it's how will you respond? How will you respond to the selfless love of God? So with that in mind, let's dig in. John chapter 13, I'm going to start at verse 1. It says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. A couple of notes, that last word, to the end, could also be translated as in perfection, to completion, in its fullness. Uh, so the idea that Jesus loved with a perfect, complete love, and also that Jesus loved till the very end, are, are both in play here. And I also want to note that John tells us a very, very key phrase in this first verse. It says that Jesus' hour had come. Now, when you read through the Gospel of John, that's, that's a key word right there, because throughout... Uh, throughout the story, Jesus continues to say, my hour has not yet come. 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 And now, John's like, hey, newsflash, Christ's hour has come. And what's he referring to? Well, in the hindsight of the cross, we know that the hour is when Jesus is high and exalted on the cross. That Jesus gets uh, his full glory bestowed upon him and he gets to be with the Father through the road of the cross. So this is what's going on as we enter this story. Verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, John really wants us to know that Judas is in Jesus' mind at this moment. Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I'll pause there for a second. Jesus, knowing all that he's been through, and knowing that just in a few days, Dad, I'm coming home. Knowing that he had been given into his hands all dominion, all authority, all power. He was the Son of God, and he knew it well. And knowing what was to come, and knowing that this was the la one of the last opportunities he had to meet with his disciples, his closest, the ones who he had just been pouring into for three years. And he knew 
that the time was coming when he would not be on earth anymore, and it was up to these 12. I wonder if you looked around the table like, I don't know. <laughs> but what's he going to do? Is it going to be a, a, a pump-up speech? Is he going to tell him some instructions that he, that he forgot to mention back in Capernaum somewhere? What, what's it going to be? What's Jesus going to do? Knowing all that he knows, what's he going to do? And this is a beautiful part in the story if you don't know where the story's going. Don't take that for granted because the gospels continue to surprise us. And the moment when we come to text expecting something is the moment where we're doing something really wrong. What's Jesus going to do? Let's find out. Verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And that's the same word John uses that Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life. He foretells his death. I'm going to lay down my life. He says the way to live is to lay down your life. That's the same word. He, he lays down his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin does the craziest thing. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is wild, right? And we need to understand that this was culturally unacceptable, what Jesus did. You see, washing the feet was, was a, a, a religious practice that you needed to be cleansed before you could eat, right? But we all have lived in human bodies long enough to know that feet stank, right? And if we in 2019, with the help of athletic socks and athletic footwear and all this stuff, can still get athlete's foot, you best believe that the disciples' feet were nasty, okay? These are desert dwellers, desert walkers, sandal-wearing guys, and the sweat that was caked on in that desert sun, the dust just clung to it, and their feet would have been black. I mean, it was gross, okay? So one thing that Jesus does is he gets dirty. He takes off his outer garment and puts a towel around his waist, right? That's, that's the modern equivalent of putting your work shirt on, work pants, work boots, rolling up the sleeves. I've got a work shirt at the house, and it's an old denim ratty shirt it's got stains everywhere and when I button that shirt up on roll the sleeves it's time to get something done right so he he puts on his work clothes and he gets dirty he also gets very intimate with his disciples you see the only case in which someone would wash someone's feet if it wasn't a servant was if a child would wash their parents feet or sometimes a wife would wash her husband's feet or sometimes the disciples would watch their teacher's feet for, for the intimacy of it. Because that's a very vulnerable moment, right? Guys, I wear sandals in the summer, and I don't want any of you guys touching my feet in the summer. Because that makes me uncomfortable. More than just like that that's weird for you, that's weird for me too, right? That's, that's vulnerable. He gets intimate with them. He feels a practical need. Like I said, this was something that, that needed to be done, um, not just for the, the religious right of it, but also just for the sake of cleanliness. I mean, we all wash our hands before we eat, or we're supposed to be. And just for the sake of not spreading disease and germs, washing the feet before the meal was very important. It was something that needed to happen. It was a practical need. 
But you know, the craziest thing that Jesus does here is he takes the form of a servant, a slave, a house slave. No one did this job except the household slave because it was so nasty. And in fact, a Jewish slave wouldn't even do this job. Only Gentile slaves washed people's feet. And Jesus, having all authority and power in his hands, did not complain about the socioeconomic status of the day in which the slaves were lazy or not present. He didn't say, that's not my job. And bear in mind that Jesus Christ is the only human who ever lived who had the authority to say, that's literally not my job. I didn't come to wash feet. And what's he do? He gets down below, below the ones that he's teaching. He's the master, but yet he gets below them and washes feet. It's amazing. It's amazing. I have a question. What would the world look like if we, in the same spirit of Jesus, when we saw something wrong in the world, if we didn't complain about who's not doing their job, if we didn't point our finger at the government and say they should be taking care of this, what would the world look like if instead we saw a problem, we put on our work shirt and fixed it? Let me bring it a little closer to home. What would our community look like? What would Wabash and the surrounding areas look like if we, if Bachelor Creek Church of Christ committed to not complaining, not pointing fingers, not saying that's not my job, not saying that's too low for me, but if we just saw a need and said, I can do that, and did it, what would our world look like? What would our schools look like? What would our neighborhoods look like? I know that it would look a lot more like heaven than it does right now. Let's continue. Verse 6. I love this part. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. I love Peter. Can anyone else just relate to Peter? This, this conflict of intense emotion that just rages in his life. The, the decisions that he makes that are just full of emotion and like complete empty of understanding or knowledge or did you think through this at all? And Chloe attested in first hour that that's often how I live and it's not always great. <laughs> I do make some mistakes, right? But I just, I just relate to Peter. Because Peter's the guy who, when there's a storm, and Jesus, Jesus stayed behind. So it's just the disciples in the boat, and there's this wicked storm, okay? The waves are blowing, the rain's falling down on his head, the wind's blowing him around. And then they're, they're scared to death. And then they see out in the distance this figure that they think is a ghost. And everyone's scared. Peter's the guy who's out on the bow of the boat like, Jesus, is that you? 
Jesus, I can't swim, and that water's going to be cold, and I can hear my mama saying that I'll get pneumonia if I get in the water, but Jesus, if that's you, I'm coming after you. And Jesus says, it's me. <laughs> and Simon Peter jumps in. I love that. And there's just a part of me, just a part of me, that if I listen to it, that's like, man, I want to be more like that. I want to be a guy who responds without understanding. I want to be a guy who, when Jesus calls me, I jump out of the boat. But then, what happens to Peter? He gets out in the water, and he's scared to willies, and he sinks. And we may look at Peter as another example of failure. And Peter gets a bad rap. Because he is, I mean, he, he just is a gunslinger. I mean, he makes some crazy decisions, and he fails a lot. But I think Peter actually might be a model for what following Jesus looks like. I think Peter is a beautiful model of responding without understanding. Peter's a guy who responds to the selfless love of God, and you can't take that away from him. And yes, he fails, and all the disciples fail a lot, and any of us with just a twinge of honesty when we read that and hear that, we're like, oh, thank God, there's a chance for me too. Because even the closest kept screwing up. But what, that was the thing. They, they didn't understand. That was the thing that Jesus continued to say. Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? Do you still not understand? But yet, the disciples are our models for following Jesus. Why? Because they continued to follow him despite their understanding. Yeah, they made a lot of mistakes. But I think God shows us that he would rather have that. He would rather have someone who's willing to step out of the boat because he will always pick us back up, friends, than have people standing back in the boat. And see, Peter was blessed because he responded with what was churning in his guts and he had the opportunity to have such an intimate moment with his Savior that no one else did because he looked straight in the eyes of Jesus pulling him up out of the water. What a beautiful picture. So that wasn't failure at all. And, you know, I also, so th those are the people that Jesus picked on his team, right? The people who he knew would respond. He knew they wouldn't get it, but he knew they would respond. Those are the ones he picked on his team. And I looked at the people that Jesus had the most trouble with. Who were they? The religious elite. The folks who were slow to change. Who were reluctant to do anything different who were straight up unwilling to move. Jesus had the most trouble with the people who, in the name of God, were clinging to their traditions, clinging to the things that they thought they knew about God, clinging to the things that they thought would bring them close to God and to bring their people close to God. They clung to him so tightly. And Jesus said that they judged themselves because the light came into the world, that God himself came into the world, presented himself, and they wanted none of it. So he moved on. That these people would rather cling to what they knew, even though that in the most honest moments of their lives, maybe before they were falling asleep, maybe just in quiet moments of introspection, there's something within them that just knew this isn't right. This current lifestyle is not satisfying. There's something wrong here. My soul does not feel full. This can't be it. But even... Even then, they would rather cling to their darkness than follow the light. Why? Because they knew their darkness and they had become comfortable in it. And it's scary to follow something you don't know. And those were the folks that judged themselves and that Jesus had to dismiss. 
Friends, let us not be those kind of people. Far be it from us. Let's continue. Picking up in the middle of verse 10, Jesus says, And you are clean, addressing all of them, that's a plural you, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Two times now, Judas is in Jesus' mind, and John wants us to know it. Let's continue. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Here's a hint, they didn't. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, read this out loud with me. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. That's fellowship. Jesus said, I am God and I am the perfect form of man and I'm going to show you how to live and I just want you to follow me. I just want you to do what I do. That's it. Let's continue now. Verse 16, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And that's us. We're servants and we're messengers, and Christ is our master. He's the one who sent. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Friends, the world is going to tell you that you will be blessed if you follow your own gumption, if you follow your own inklings, if you look out for number one. And there's something within you, we call it sin, that's going to tell you that you need to take care of yourself. You need to defend yourself. You need to protect yourself against emotional and physical dangers. And you put up walls and you try to protect yourself and you look out for number one. But Jesus says that you will be blessed if you look to serve other people before yourself. If you reorient your life around other people's needs and not your own. If you change your schedule to fit what other people need more than yourself. If your number one priority is not yourself, but is actually other people, Jesus says you'll be blessed, truly blessed. Verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me, namely the Father, God, King of the universe, eternal divine love. Now Jesus is talking about Judas. He's talking about his betrayal. So that's three times now that John points out that Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. So I think it bears note, and I think it bears us talking about it a little bit. Because here's the thing, Jesus washed 12 sets of feet, not just 11. And John's very clear that Jesus knew what was already churning in Judas's heart. Jesus knew what was to come. So I can imagine that Jesus, as he's washing feet, three more till I get to Judas. Two more till I get to Judas. One more till I have to get to Judas. And when Jesus got to Judas... And he looked at his face, 
and he saw those lips. Jesus knew that those same lips were going to betray him with a stone-cold kiss just hours later. That all the time and energy and emotion and heart that Jesus had poured into Judas was all going out the window because Judas was going to betray him. And that's all Judas knew, but Jesus even knew beyond that. Jesus knew that it didn't end there. And I wonder if when Jesus is staring at Judas, if he could feel in his back what was to come. If he could feel the cat of nine tails being lashed at him. If he could feel the bone ripping his skin open. I wonder if Jesus could hear in his ears the words of his mockers. Here's your king, O Jews, high and lifted up. And I wonder if he could hear the very ones he came to save shouting out at him, he saved others, why can't he save himself? Those words were ringing in his ears. I know they were. I wonder if he could see through a furrowed brow that was pressed down by a crown woven with thorns digging into his skull. I wonder if he could taste in his mouth that sour wine that he begged for. He was so thirsty and they handed up to him on a sponge. And experiencing all these things, they were in the forefront of his mind's friends. Knowing what was to come just hours later. And having all power and authority to put an end to it at that moment. To say, I'm done. What did he do to Judas? He got down. Made himself lower than his betrayer took out the rag, just like he did with all the other disciples. And he washed his feet in it. And he didn't just wash the dirt off of his feet. He washed the sin from his soul. Friends, I know he did because that's what our God does. So if you're like me, and you listen to the enemy taunt you, and you believe the lies that he throws at you because he is an accuser, and if you know in your head that you're really forgiven, but you struggle to feel it within your soul that you're thoroughly washed clean. And if every time you, tr you start to do something and you get an idea, I'm going to do something good, I'm going to stand up for the kingdom, you are immediately just bombarded with reasons why you can't do it, why you're not good enough, why it's not right, and, and all this stuff. If you're like me and you, and you experience that, friends, I just pray that this morning we can look into the eyes of Jesus. He looks up in the eyes of his betrayer and washes him clean. Because that's the heart of God. It's the selfless love of God that doesn't take into account return of investment. There was no return on that investment, but he still washed him clean. How will you respond to the selfless love of God? How will you respond to the selfless love of God. We're given an incredible opportunity to respond through communion. And I actually forgot something. We're not there yet. Sorry. <laughs> Backtrack a little bit. I want to give you guys practical opportunities to respond. If you open up your bulletin, uh, you'll find a piece of paper like this. And this is all of the holes in our community right now. I want to be clear. This is not 
all the opportunities that you can serve at Bachelor Creek. There's many more than that. These are places where there's currently a hole to be filled here in our community. These are places where we need a human being, someone who bears the image of God, who's going to say, yes, I can do that, and I will show up faithfully when I'm supposed to, and I will bring the presence of God into that place because I bear God's image. We need, we need that person there, and we don't have a person there right now. All of these, and these represent more than just one. Some of these upwards of 10. Friends, I can tell you, Tiny Town needs about 10 people right now who will say, I'm gonna show up for them. I'm gonna serve people. That's how I'm gonna respond. I also listed some um, in the community. I'll, I'll point out one. Uh, just last week, I had two women come to me uh, from CASA. That's court-appointed special advocates. And they told me that there are 40 kids in Wabash County alone right now that are abused, neglected, and have no advocate. And friends, if the very spirit of God is called advocate, if what the Spirit of God does is stand between us and the righteous judge, and we're covered in sin, and the Spirit of God says he's clean, she's clean, they've been washed by the blood, if that's the Spirit of God, shouldn't we be advocates for those who are abused and neglected? And if 40 people don't say yes, if 40 people don't respond to the selfless love of God in this way, they'll be left to DCS. And I won't dig into stories, but I've heard enough stories to know that DCS isn't always after what's the best for the child. They, they seek to unify the nuclear family first, and friends, we know that that's just not always the best option for the child. So we have the opportunity to advocate, to actually get to know the child, get to know the family, know what's going on, and then advocate in court for what that child needs. And to my amazement, they said, oh yeah, they listen to us in court. Judges will listen to us. That's the way that you can respond to the selfless love of God. How will you respond to the selfless love of God? Start small. Do something that you can do. And please don't tell me that that's not your job because that's not what Jesus did. How will you respond to the selfless love of God? Now we'll enter into communion. This could be the most beautiful way to respond to the selfless love of God. And that is, friends, just to receive it. Just receive it. And when Jesus instituted this, he didn't give us something else to try to understand or wrap our minds around. No, he gave us something to taste. And I love God for that. I want you to be very intentional this morning as we'll, we'll pass the plates normally as, as we always do. But I want you to be very intentional about receiving this. Because you can't take communion. It's given. It's served to you. In the same way, you can't take God's love. It's given. Paul spent almost his entire life trying to convince people to stop trying to earn the love of God by doing the right things. It's given. So I know we're talking about serve people, but I don't want to get this wrong that first we just receive it, friends. Receive the selfless love of God that's just been poured out for you. And taste that, that bread that represents Christ's body and drink that juice that represents his blood and know that it was poured out for you and he gave it from the heart.
receive it with kindness. And then just as the, the inhale leads to the exhale, as, as you receive the love of God and taste it, then serve it to your neighbor. And let that, let that be our model. Let that be our pattern. Let this morning be a practice of what our entire lives are supposed to look like. Receiving of that selfless love of God. And then passing it on. That's what serving people is. Would you pray with me? Christ, you are so good. And I thank you for this moment because there's nothing that I could say or do or any of us could accomplish that just amounts to your breathtaking glory and love that you've poured out on us. So, Father, I just pray that in this moment we would be receivers of your love and that through your Holy Spirit you would empower us to respond to it and pass it on. Christ, dwell with us richly. We pray these things in your name.